Hello, agents, and welcome to a special episode of Podcast 13. So, as we are recording, the Barry and Wells panel at Clexicon has just finished, and we just want to talk about it, because it was very good, and it was also a lot. It was so amazing. Obviously, the first thing that we got was an intro video. It was made by an amazing person who we all know and love named Mal. And that video got, I think, every person in tears, including Joanne and Jamie. It was incredible. It was so good. And I'll link Mal's Twitter account when we post this video because she does it with such heart and love. And so we just support everything she does. Yes, sorry, I'm distracted because one of the great takeaways I got from the chat during the panel was that there is a Bering and Wells Discord um, that I think if you just chat with some folks on Twitter, they can give you the invite link. I think you need a link, obviously, so it doesn't get spammed with bots or anything. But uh, people over there are really nice and really smart. And like, it's very well moderated and thoughtful. And so I'm just so excited. Correct me if I'm wrong, Twitterverse, because I may have misread something, but I'm pretty sure Yana at Pearl Turtle put it together. The Discord? I think so. I believe that. That sounds like, that sounds totally believable to me. So like, let's jump into it because people who listen to this podcast regularly and not just for Clexicon stuff know that I am queer but I'm also like very just demi so I have a lot of trouble understanding my feelings and don't necessarily see romantic stuff right off the bat so back in the day when I first watched Warehouse 13 my reactions to Micah slash Joanne Kelly and Jamie slash um HG Wells my reaction was more wow individually I find both of them extremely attractive and I want to stare at them for a while and didn't like really think of it much beyond that. But then when I started re-watching for the podcast, I was like, this is extremely gay. This is actually now that I'm not just seeing these people for the first time, because I just don't t- tend to think of people romantically or sexually the first time I see them ever. But <laughs> in watching it, I was like, this is wow, extremely very, very much gay. And the panel gave me that same feeling of, wow, like, I knew this was gay, but I, this was a gayer panel than I expected, yes? Yes, and that was the thing that is so obvious when these two women are together, because obviously we've heard Jamie talk fondly about Bering and Wells and all of that kind of awesome stuff, but when you put the two of them in a room or a virtual room, that the chemistry just comes out, and they just have it, and that's clearly what they talked about in the panel is that that uh, Joanne said that the queer relationship came, what did she say, from, from the inside out instead of yeah. the outside in. So when she met Jamie and as they filmed together, it just came because it was earnest in in the relationship they had. And there was the best moment for me when um, when they were talking about this. And Joanne specifically said, like, that she was being a uh, a bit uh, standoffish and, like, reading her, her book. And, uh, and then Jamie came on set. And Jamie, who was like, you know, my ego kind of, kind of got to me. And I was like, 
how can I make this woman love me? Who's like reading a book and like doing her own (laughs) thing and seems kind of introverted. And so that was so amazing that I've never heard that version of the story described in that way. I've always heard that the two actresses were like on board and creating this relationship, but hearing Jamie Murray say, because of Joanne's like, on-set personality, I decided to seduce her. And then like that just becomes palpable in the text is amazing. It was so cool. It really was. And the other thing I was, I guess sort of nervous around celebrity events, not because of like personal nerves, but just because I've been in this town long enough that I'm very aware when actors or creators of any kind have to answer the same questions over and over and they always like actors always do a good job of making it seem fresh and like they've never done this before but after seeing these kinds of things so many times I can always tell when they've just been like yeah we felt this way and we like really got along well on set and this felt very much the opposite of that this felt like yes, we've been waiting to declare how gay this is to a gay audience specifically for a long time. And we're very glad. Like there was so much new information and new detail here that I didn't expect. And the clear joy that these women have in talking to each other and reminiscing about their specific experience in this was really refreshing. And I think even more meaningful to me personally than their Dragon Con panel that they did together Mm-hmm. Because even though it was just the two of them, that audience was just the general audience. And as Joanne said in the panel, there are lots of men who like to talk a lot at these panels. So the audience wasn't, they probably didn't feel the audience was as receptive as the Clexicon audience was. It just felt very free and unrestrained and like they'd been waiting for this exact opportunity for a long time. And uh, Jill, you do a lot of, Uh, media industry cons and panels. I do a lot of academic cons and panels. And it unfortunately is always the same where the men, I'm sorry, the men who have the least to say end up saying the most. Um, And things get driven by, uh, by that impulse and that point of view. And that's just kind of a socially ingrained patriarchal thing. I'm not saying like the individual men who do it are bad. It's just like they are socialized that they can speak and take up as much space as they want. And so having a female space slash a queer space, a feminist space feels really liberating for a lot of us. Yeah. And I I do think it is due to some socialization details that we different gender presenting people pick up over time. And I call it class clown energy (laughs) Like, it's just a way to deal with nerves, and I don't think it makes the men who do it a bad person or that they're doing it in some sort of attempt to overtalk women. I think that their vibe is just we want to tone down the level of seriousness and make everyone feel comfortable and sort of loose. And I feel like especially with everyone we know from Warehouse 13, that seems to very much fit with how they comport themselves, but the way that women reduce tension is to mediate or retreat within themselves very often. I mean, obviously gender roles aren't binary, but I just, we're socialized to behave in certain ways, you know? And so I think that the more 
loud a man is being, the more a woman feels like she has to retreat in order to compensate for the just big energy that's in the room. Yes. And you know what that links to so well is uh, one of the first things Joanne and Jamie said, which was that when Joe was first, were they calling her Joe? That was so cute. When (laughs) Joanne was first on the set, it was a mostly male cast, like, because if, you know, Claudia comes in in episode four, like she actually wasn't there for the first few and blah, blah, blah. Um, And so she was doing that retreat. She said she was reading books on the set. She was just kind of waiting for her turn to do her role. And then like the big masculine energies of the room were kind of taking up the rest of the space. And that's, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's fine. If you're an actor, as long as you're playing your role, you can do whatever you want. You can read a book on the set. So yeah. that's how she was behaving. And then when Jamie came on and was like, I want to know why this woman is over there in her own corner. Like, I want to be in that corner with her. I want to be like in her social space. Like that story just felt so real and relatable. And I loved it. Yeah. And like Joanne talked a lot about what it was like to be in scenes with women versus scenes with men. And also the lens of having most discussions of character be about animosity or love with men Mm -hmm. and you sort of see that over the course of warehouse 13 in joanne kelly's acting i have a lot of feelings about um lena and how i wish wish she was used more Mm -hmm. in the show um and there aren't a lot of micah lena scenes which always made me a little sad because they live in like the same place i feel like they should have interacted more but the one memorable scene that I can think of of them together is like in episode two where Lena's like, Pete's cute. And like, you can just see Micah be like, we're not having this conversation. This is what (laughs) I want to talk about right now. And then she sometimes has scenes with Claudia, but even though Claudia is like this huge part of the team, I am very aware as someone who studied television and stuff that they hardly ever shot scenes together in for the team. Like they were on a case together, but P is usually with Micah, and Claudia is usually with Artie, and so even if they're talking on a Farnsworth, they're not actually talking to each other. So Joanne isn't really getting that female interaction. Mm-hmm. So, but most of H.G. Wells' scenes are with Joanne Kelly, you know? Like, they're with Micah. And so they got to explore a super female dynamic, not just in text, but actually in a scene together, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, and in the chat, the fans identified like, oh, they t- they're they talking about the Bechdel test without using the name Bechdel test. Like mm-hmm. both both actors, Joanne and Jamie, were talking about that difference of and and they mentioned it several times, too. Like it doesn't feel that this was that long ago that the show was on, but it really was. And it's incredible how much has changed in such a small amount of time relatively. Like, obviously, there's still progress that needs to be made. And obviously, there were, like, you know, Steve Jinks was openly gay on the show, and I think that's really important to never, like, erase that they did some canon queer things. But, like, thinking about uh, the Bechdel test 10 years ago versus now, like, obviously, they were in a different place, and it's good that... Even though it was limited, they got a little bit uh, of growth throughout the Warehouse 13 arc. 
For sure. And I do feel like some stuff would definitely be different if the show was on now. But I think one of the reasons that we can all still love Warehouse 13 is that some things wouldn't be different. And it's some of the stuff that Joanne Kelly talked about in the panel of my favorite line from it was she as Joanne Kelly playing Micah was thinking to herself, I wonder how long it'll take Micah to figure it out. It being her romantic feelings toward H.G. Wells. And that, I feel, would have been the same. Like, the journey that we saw Micah go on regarding her feelings about H.G. Wells, that journey would have been the same, I feel like. Yes, and that's the thing that... uh, Because if we imagine the circumstances were similar, like the the first character meeting of uh, Joanne and Jamie being their characters, H.G. and Micah, like Joanne said and gave us this great anecdote in the panel, and she's talked about it before, that uh, when (laughs) the anecdote she shared today was that she was taking painkillers because of an injury, so she was kind of out of it. And she couldn't keep her hair out of her face because she was like so tuckered out from all of her injuries and stuff. And that uh, that Jamie reached out and like moved the hair away from her face. And that in that moment, Joanne, not not Micah, but the actual actor was like, oh, my gosh. And she said she started seeing unicorns and sparkles. And it was (laughs) like, I I relate to that. And I think, Jill, you relate to that in like a moment of kind of I don't know, like sexual realization like oh I'm attracted to that person like oh boy like um but I love the way that Joanne put it when she was like what is this because that's very much my experience it wasn't I'm attracted to them which some people feel and good for them for being able to know that that's what they're feeling but I related so much to her specific wording of these are feelings what what is happening because like you you've had feelings before but they're different yes no and I think that's the thing and I think that's why so many young queer folks are still finding the show and finding resonance with it is because it's on screen that a real woman is having a real realization of like, oh, I'm really interested in this thing that I never thought maybe I was interested in. Um, And I like, yeah, I like how you and I read the same thing in almost the same way, but just slightly different to our own experiences. Like I might know, yeah, this is attraction. And you might be like, oh, this is like some kind of exciting interest and intrigue. And that intrigue, I think, is what fuels the Baring and Wells relationship is that, yeah, of course, there is like romantic chemistry, but there's also fascination between the two separate worlds. These two strong, as as Jamie called them, spiky women are both coming from these different worlds and responding to each other accordingly. And they're both so fascinated by the other person. Yeah. And that is, I think, what resonates to me the most out of everything, because Obviously, they're both incredibly attractive people and therefore incredibly attractive characters. But that didn't ever seem to be the motivation for their attraction, which is, I think, why the writers, specifically the male writers of Warehouse 13, maybe didn't pick up on as much of the queer acting choices and incorporate that more into their writing. Um, because I think that people are so used to writing romance as based on, oh God, who's that gorgeous woman across the room? Right. Where for a lot of people, me included, it's 
I love the things that you say and the things that you do and I want to know what you're going to do next and I just I feel intrigued to be around you and it's like a constant learning experience and I think I don't know if that's more common with lesbians or queer women in general or if it's just something that resonates a lot with us because we don't see it frequently but that feels very much like what was driving that relationship. And I think you and I just in our personal lives talked about this recently about how queer women, regardless of how we present our genders and regardless of what we identify as, it's like when you are not exclusively curating your personality and image and external things for men, like it's even if you're so like me, I am attracted to men and I am kind of stereotypically feminine but because I'm also interested in attracting women like it's just there's this this something different about what energy you put out into the world and I think queer folks and queer women can pick up on that energy and be like oh you're presenting yourself and in a way that is not solely for the male gaze like even if you are by your pan like it's not solely for the male gaze and so that's kind of what they talked about in a indirect way with when they were reading their lines and it was all men behind the camera and men behind the scenes and they were just putting the emotion and chemistry into the lines that weren't inherently romantic or chemistry heavy and that Jamie did a hilarious impression of the men behind the camera being like huh what because they (laughs) they just didn't perceive the world that way they never thought that women would be thinking or responding to the to the situation in that way and so it's so cool to see that represented and to see it coming from the actual actors themselves yeah and I want to say that I don't think it's necessarily a function of homophobia or a lack of understanding of women in a conventional sense that leads male creators to be this way I think it's because and I'm not saying men don't have complex emotions so please don't take that away from what I'm saying I think that in society men don't have permission to be openly emotional with each other or at least they certainly didn't back in 2010, 2011, when this all started being filmed. So it doesn't occur to them the ways in which women would be emotionally vulnerable with each other because you can't, you just can't do that, you know? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and we have talked about that too, where, you know, Clexicon and the Bering and Wells panel are queer and female focused. But at the same time, there's so much else about Warehouse 13 that's also powerful, like the the vulnerability in some of the male characters and the positive representation of Steve Jinks being a gay man. Like, there is so much to take away from the show beyond just one specific point of view. And so um, when we talked to Eddie, that was very clear that he got to... I don't know. He played a role of a of a masculine buff Gidham character, but he had emotional depth and so much to contribute beyond the like James Bond type of the pilot that was kind of typecasting him mm-hmm. and then it, it became so much more than that. Absolutely. That panel was a real thinker too. It wasn't just fan service. It was like 
part of me was so excited to be a part of it as a queer woman but this whole other part of me was excited to be engaged with this panel as an industry creative woman yeah which like you are too now Miranda as a podcaster like you create media and put it out into the world and I think that luckily we haven't seen a lot of negative bashing or anything from like male podcasters but there certainly has been this like rallying of community of female podcasters and queer podcasters that we instantly felt a part of yeah and it was cool to see Joanne and Jamie sort of feel free to express themselves in that way as if they were part of a community too and they they mentioned that uh, Jamie a uh, uh quote that I wrote down was that she felt so honored that she was welcomed into like an activist community because um, women in media are marginalized and, uh, you know, have to stand up for themselves and keep fighting for equality. And obviously queer people too, and queer women in, you know, multiple levels of their identities are being kind of pushed to the outskirts of the, the media industry. And so when Jamie was looking at the fans and she was thinking these people who love our work are so strong and active and like equality minded. And, you know, like she, she was like, again, like tearing up by thinking that, you know, oh, well, I'm just an actor. And I, I don't recall, but I think Jamie doesn't personally identify as queer. So she's feeling like, she has made a contribution that a marginalized group is really uh, impacted by in a positive way. And I think that was so powerful to see her acknowledge and talk about the way she feels welcomed and like proud of being a part of this group that we're all a part of. That, I'm so glad you brought that up. That makes me so happy. And I was thinking a lot during the panel about how both Jamie and Joanne interact with queerness and queer femininity and I have like such respect and appreciation for how both of them do it and how both of them do it so differently like for me Joanne just very much gives a voice to the kind of nebulous queer that I am that I don't see in a lot of places of you know she doesn't come out and say like I like women. She just says, you know, I like people and I like who I like. And she just sort of alludes to it a lot. And, you know, that's fine. You don't have to know enough about yourself to declare something specific to know that you feel something real. And I I really appreciate that. And I like that she brought that to Micah specifically because it really comes across. Um, whereas I think Jamie really represents the best part of what it means to be an actor. And as someone who acted for a long time, like I can tell you the worst thing about being an actor is you just feel like a vessel and someone puts words into you and then they come out. And that's how it feels when you are doing a role you don't particularly like and sometimes you feel awkward because the role that you're giving life to, the character isn't someone you want to be, so it's harder to inhabit them. You know? Oh, I see. Yeah, I get what you mean. But Jamie, I don't know person. I know she's married to a man, I think, but I don't know how she identifies romantically or if I don't feel like that's our business if she doesn't want to say. But like, I feel like she took the challenge. She's like, I am an actor. 
and I may or may not have these, you know, queer feelings, but I totally recognize the voice of the community that needs this representation. And because I get to be a vessel, I can bring that to life for them. And she clearly takes such pride in doing that as an act of service rather than an act of performance and look at me. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it it really echoes what she was describing, I think. So uh, she was describing how she embodied the role of female H.G. Wells, who, and I love that um, it just seems so apparent that Jamie did research beyond what the script gave her. Because as we have a Patreon bonus uh, where I talk about the historical H.G. Wells, who was not a woman, but he was like a socialist and a feminist and a very revolutionary progressive radical. And so um, even though they changed the actual history and made it like, oh, H.G. was Helena G. and all of this, that's not really true. Uh, Jamie picked up on the real historical late uh, high Victorian period and the social and political revolution that was taking place and the side of history that H.G. Wells was on, you know, still flawed because he was a Victorian and he was a white man in the Victorian era. But generally speaking, his beliefs were progressive. And so Jamie was talking about like being a 19th century woman thrust into the modern era and how all of the values that H.G. Wells was fighting for are realized in Micah. And like, we're about to get to the season two finale. So spoiler, like H.G. Wells is dissatisfied by the world and how the world has failed to live up to the promise, uh, you know, because H.G. Wells wrote a novel speculating about the future and like a socialist utopia that was yet to come. I think it's called Things to Come, something like that. And it didn't come. And so Helena in the show is, you know, on the brink of mental crisis because the world isn't better. But it's Micah. Micah is better. Micah is a strong, empowered, pant-wearing, gun-toting woman. And that is what saves HG at the end of the finale, obviously. And that is what Jamie was bringing to that character the whole time, is that, like, this woman has everything that I was wishing for in the past. Yeah, and, like, it may not be everyone like I thought it would be, but it is some. Mm -hmm. And that's good and better than it would have been. And I think that message resonates more to me now, these days, than it did originally. Because I think if we put it through a different lens of oppression not to get too heavy, but if you were from the 1960s and you saw the assassination of MLK and then you saw the passage of the Voting Rights Act and then your sort of timeline ended, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is the start of something so good. Surely X number of years from now, things are going to be better. And then if you got plopped right into this year and you saw all of the things that have been happening... I mean, I would understand. I would understand that desire that H.G. had to end the world. Like, I had all of this faith that this would be better by now. And how much it would mean to you if you saw one person thriving in that environment. It doesn't mean that the problems don't exist anymore. 
but it does mean that at least for some people, some things are better and that's enough to get you through. And understanding the gravity of that emotional weight, I think really brings a level of intensity to Bering and Wells that I didn't really necessarily understand the first time around. Absolutely. And it is such a good segue into the other like really evocative conversation that the women had, which was a uh, a Twitter person asked a question, which was like something like, what was your favorite scene to film? And Joanne just immediately was like the heaving bosom scene, which is what we're talking about. It's where, you know, HG is about to destroy the world and Micah is, you know, fighting with her and like appealing to the good inside of her. And like they're both outside in Yosemite. And I don't remember, I don't remember. Apparently, Micah's wearing a tank top and she feels like her, like Joanne felt like her bosom was just like out because they were, <laughs> they, but that's so true. Like when you watch that scene, they're acting with their entire hearts and their entire bodies, like having this moment of crisis between Jamie and Joanne's characters and so like we all laughed obviously heaving bosom and being queer women and like thinking that that was so fun but like it's also so deep and it makes me think about that finale so hard because to be honest to be honest I thought uh for many years that it was like a little over the top I was like would H.G. Wells really do that but like you're saying, Jill, I think the insight from the actors and the panel today explained exactly why it was so extreme for Helena to be experiencing what she was experiencing. Yeah, I 100% agree because, yeah, your bosom heaves, but like <laughs> that's because that's where your chest and heart are. And like your emotions. And your breath. Yeah, it's where you keep like your soul is right in that part of you. And these actors were really like physically tearing it out of themselves and putting it out there for us and that is really cool because I mean again I talk I at its best acting is an act of service and I really think that that's what this relationship was oh my gosh yeah so much and uh it also shed light on, and I, I only mean to talk about this in a positive way, how Joanne said and, and mentioned that she really turned her career towards writing after podcast or podcast 13, after Warehouse 13, <laughs> which is fantastic. And I validate that choice. I, I, to be honest, I stay behind the, the microphone and like barely survive for the same reason. Like when you're putting your heart into creating something and it's so exhausting and it's so challenging like um you know she was saying that uh she felt a frustration in a lack of representation and in some of the work environments where she was and so that shifted her she wanted to improve things and tell better stories and different stories and her own stories by becoming a writer and i just related to that so so much and I think the fan community relates to that so, so much because, you know, Bering and Wells is what it is because of fans, because of transformative fiction and other transformative works. Like, you know, technically this podcast is a work of fan fiction. Technically all of the comics out there, all of the artists drawings out there, those are all fan fiction and they're all transformative works. 
I don't know, writing blog entries or tweets about loving the show, like you are transforming the work into what do we call it in academia, like criticism, commentary and review. You're turning it into a primary text that you are then reading and sharing your reading with others. So I don't know. I went off on a thing there, but just saying like. No, I followed you completely. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. It just felt so powerful that that impulse that we all have is also inside of Joanne Kelly a little bit, that she's going to go be a writer. Well, it's actually so funny to me because you related to it on this metaphorical level of what it means to take yourself out and control the narrative yourself and like in all the ways you described. But for me, it was almost literally the same mm-hmm. experience because I acted for 21 years and I've, I've always written and I've always known I wanted to be a storyteller. And over the course of my life, I've sort of explored what that means. And for 21 years of that life, it was acting. And I just grew so tired in the exact way that Joanne Kelly did of, I'm saying a lot of things that I don't want to say. And I have a lot of scenes that I don't have control over in the way I wish I did. And if I did have control of them, the story would be different. And I did transition from acting to writing around the time I met Miranda. And Miranda knows like my life is different now than it was. And like I, she's read my scripts. Like I have things to say that are different than what is out there. And I think it's really good for Joanne to have recognized not only that desire in herself, but that belief in her capability to do it. Because I think that's what stops a lot of women from taking control in that same way. And it could be from, you know, something else to writing, but it could be in whatever aspect of your life is important to you. What do you wish you had control over? And do you believe that you have the capacity to take that control. And I think that her saying that she did that and why she did that and what the missing pieces were in her life that led her to do that, I think is really going to be healing and inspiring for a lot of women. Yes. Oh, I agree. And I also want to shout out a couple of things that Joanne mentioned. Um, Well, the first I learned, so thank you to the fans in chat. I said, oh my gosh, what is Joanne writing? I am there. I want to read it. And so she's been writing for a TV show called Absentia. I don't know if you know this, Jill. But I didn't know she was writing for that. Holy yeah. cow. So that's where she has been at recently. Um, so you can look that up. I've never seen it, never heard of it. But the fans in, it. in the chat told me that she was killing it. So I'm really stoked about it. And then in the um, in the very end of the panel, Joanne mentioned that she has other projects that she's working on. And she wants to like start a newsletter and let her fans know, like, maybe we can get this script made. Maybe we can get this. I don't know what if she's writing films or TV. I don't know. Novels. I don't know what she's writing. Um, But I would say absolutely stay on the lookout for Joanne's up and coming work, because it was clear that she is passionate about that road that she's taken. And it makes me so happy because I always was like, I mean, you guys know social media is just bad for my mental health problems. And so like, I have to have it because I'm a podcaster, but like, I haven't been on it because I've been so ill. (laughs) 
And then, so I'm like, maybe that's why Joanne isn't on it. You know, she, she should do her, no one should ever be forced to have social media. Um, but now knowing that like, regardless of what personal choices led her to not have social media, she is creating work and she wants us to see it. That just brightens my soul. That makes me so happy because, you know, it's good to know that your, your heroes are thriving, that they're doing something and that, you know, they're, they're not being on Twitter is just a personal choice and it's not anything to do with not creating work anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I don't necessarily think that you need to be in the weeds of a fandom to be a good creator, but you should have some knowledge of the fandom. And it really struck me the respect that those two women have for all of us. The things that they said, the that they care about what we're creating and it makes it so not that it's hard to care but it makes it feel worthwhile to continue to put energy into the appreciation of people who are also appreciating you and the fact that they specifically shouted out like hey we have read fan fiction and we enjoy it you should read more of it like that was cool and to see them know mal's name and thank her for putting that in the beautiful intro video together. That is a level of care from a creator-consumer relationship that I think most people listening to this would agree is very uncommon. Yes, and I mean, I don't know how common this is. You might know better than me, Jill, but they clearly have so much respect for each other. And that, and I I don't want this to come out as a backhanded compliment. It is not what I mean at all. But what I mean is, if you think about how just the sheer amount of things Jamie has been in, it's just so many things. Mm. And then comparatively, Joanne has been doing writing work. She's been doing a different kind of things. So their visibility levels are different. Um, Yeah. And so seeing how supportive Jamie is of Joanne's work and how, like, deep her respect is for Joanne's work, like... You know, some jerk of an actor could could think like, well, I've been in 50,000 things, so I'm the best. Jamie is not like that at all. She's just a good friend and a good supporter. And seeing the way that they both clearly love each other's works and like support each other's endeavors, just like that was what everyone on in the fandom wanted to see, like the real life friendship of these really interesting people. And, like, I'm not saying it would definitely be different if they were both from Hollywood. Um, and this isn't a knock against people from Hollywood at all. Um, I'm, I'm obviously here. <laughs> I am very lucky that I have found a group of real, actual friends here in Los Angeles. Um, and not just with Miranda, because I've known Miranda before all of this. But there is a real difficulty of finding friends in this industry out here where, yeah, you might like someone, but very often people just want to know where you're going so they can hitch their wagon to you. Mm-hmm. Even even if they actually genuinely like you, it doesn't have to be like an I'm using you kind of relationship, but you can definitely feel when someone would prefer to get something out of you, you know? And... I have a few friends out here and that's not the case at all. We just text and enjoy each other's company and support each other's success and it's so wonderful. But I think that the fact that Joanne is from Canada and Jamie is from England and the show is mostly filmed in Toronto, I think that 
taking them out of that environment was really healthy. And I'm glad that they were able to forge a real relationship because I don't know that I've seen either Jamie Murray or Joanne Kelly spend a lot of time with other co-stars I know they've had. And they might be close with those co-stars. It's not like a judgment of them, but it's it's just very clear from their relationship that it's an actual relationship, not a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship. And you know, that was the other thing I loved uh, with their kind of collaborative spirit of the two of them. And it goes back to something you mentioned that came up in the panel a couple of times, which is like, would Warehouse 13 be different? Because we we all know we're dissatisfied that HG and Micah, you know, don't get together at the very end or what have you. But when they asked that question, when Dana asked, you know, would it be different if written today? Uh, the first reaction from one of the actors, I forget which one, was it would be if we wrote it. Mm-hmm. And like that really just gave me goosebumps because I think if it was written back then, it would have been different if the two actors were the ones writing it. And we will talk about this plenty as it occurs because I think it's easy to lay blame on like one person and be like, well, it should have been queer and they chickened out, which like, I agree it should have been queer. But when we talk about networks and industry and the real serious obstacles for women and queer people that exist, I at least understand why it happened the way it did. But people have a right to put their stories into the world and we have the right to react to them how we choose, you know? But I'm not going to say yeah. you you should have written it differently the way I wanted it to be because that's then I'll just write it. Well, and that's what fan fiction is for. Yeah. And, you know, even if everything had come up, Helena and Micah, we would still write fan fiction to make it better. So knowing that they worked together to build a beautiful relationship for their characters and that they like they jokingly talked about, but like, you know, so we can't say it's coming soon, but they talked about a spinoff they would do and what they would like to see their characters do. And like they meant it. You can tell that even if they didn't talk about it, like the way that their relationship is as actors and the way that their chemistry is as characters, like it's in their brains. They know what their characters would do and want. And uh, Jamie's suggestion was that she pulls Micah back into her time. And that would be Jamie Murray's spinoff. That would be amazing. There's definitely fan fiction of that happening. So shout out to the amazing people on archive of our own. Yes. Um, but just going off of what you were saying, hang on, let me get my bearings straight. It's okay. Um, <laughs> bearings straight. She's get not. your bearings and your wealth straight. <laughs> yeah, or not, or the opposite of that. Um, so you were talking about, they said it would be different if we were writing it or if we were writing it now. It's paradoxical because I think it would have been different if they were writing it now as people who had already been on the show. Because this is the industry stuff I bring to things. It's very common to have built into your contract as a series regular um, main cast member that you get increasingly high levels of producer credits to your name as a show goes on, but that's less common if it's your first big breakthrough role. And I think that if Joanne Kelly now had the experience of being a lead in the show, that would have been in her contract and she would have been able to drive the storyline a little bit more as a producer. Likewise, 
while Jamie Murray is prolific, I don't know that she was as prolific at the time. Her big recent thing in America when she started was Dexter, which was huge, but she didn't have the laundry list of credits that she now has. And I think that with that backing, she also would have been able to say as a special guest star, hey, I'm really interested in participating in this function and I support this storyline. So I think it would be really nice to be able to see what these women would do with these characters today, now, with the power that they have now. Yeah, and you bring up a good point, which was popular in our trivia quiz, which was the fact that Jamie Murray only appeared in 15 episodes of Warehouse. And, like, we know that because we know objectively, like, she was in, like, one season and then some additional episodes. Like, that's how we think of her. But that is... For a show that had 64 total episodes, according to IMDb anyway, um, I don't know if they're counting two-parters or whatever, but that is relatively few. Yeah. You know, it's so much less than I thought because of the huge ripple effect that H.G. Wells has on the entire series. So that was really just so powerful to talk about in the chat with fellow fans and be like, look at what this one person did for this show. And... There was one specific plot point in Warehouse 13 that they talked about in the panel that we haven't gotten to yet in our uh, podcast, but I did want to address it because I have such big feelings about it, Mm -hmm. and I don't think I can wait that long to talk about it, you know? Yeah. The episode, the last time that we see H.G. Wells and she's with that man, I mean, aside from the cameo in the pilot, I mean, Mm -hmm. in the finale, when she's with a man... I felt like that wasn't the end of her storyline. And I also don't think that at the time the writers thought it was the end of her storyline because she was going on to defiance, I believe. So they needed to have her sort of go away on a semi-permanent basis. Like if they had to write her off, then this is an option, which made sense for me enough for the character as a stopgap for her, for her to say, I was once in a heterosexual enough relationship to have a child, and I don't think I want to have a child again, but here is this girl who reminds me of my daughter, and I love her. I can see that while that may have made Micah mad, where she would have understood those choices specifically from Helena at that time for her to get a kind of closure of a very valid part of her life. Like, just because H.G. Wells is queer doesn't mean that she didn't have some kind of feelings about her child's father, or negate the real trauma her character went through as a mother. I don't think that the fandom talks a lot about what it meant for her to go through child loss. And and Dana mentioned that plot point in, in the discussion as well, and how fans found that plot point. And she just meant literally, she didn't mean metaphorically or analytically, she meant that part where H.G. ends up in this suburban household, like Dana and Joanne and Jamie were all like, we didn't really, we, we couldn't really follow the storyline very well. And this is because of external factors, like the ending was being rushed, there was supposed to be more and it didn't get to come to fruition and like all of this media stuff that happened. But I, I really like hearing you talk about that because although it's tempting to just write it off and 
retreat to our alternate universe fanfics, which like go for it. We should all do. That's what like, fanfics are for, for sure. We should come to that space and try to be interested in what was happening. Like that's interesting to talk about. I also have a respect for H for HG Wells outside of queerness at all, in terms of in terms of her other identities of a mother, a Victorian woman. Um, and I know that being queer affects all of those identities, but I do think that it's not necessarily the driving force of every choice within those identities. Mm -hmm. And I think that obviously a huge part of Helena's character was the fact that she lost this child and she didn't deal with it. She didn't deal with it ever. She didn't deal with it when she was back in the Victorian age. She didn't deal with it while she was bronzed. She didn't deal with it until... Micah said, kill me. Mm -hmm. And then her relationship with this man, I don't really think was about him or about queerness or straightness at all. I think it was about her for the first time trying to address and heal that broken mom part of herself. And I think that in the same way that queerness isn't really explored in media as much as it should be and isn't given its space, I think that storyline in itself is really poignant and isn't given its space in media too. Does that make sense at all? That makes so much sense. Yeah, I just like didn't fully understand because I barely remember, as Dana pointed out, I barely remember that point. And it, again, it would have gone further if the show had continued for three more seasons, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you have additional notes, but I have just a suggestion, which is, uh, I would like to mention a few highlights of our trivia quiz. Yes! And then perhaps, Jill, you could mention a few highlights of any other events you participated in, and then we will close out. How does that sound? That sounds perfect. I'm very excited. So we had a trivia quiz, and we will post the link to our Twitter and other accounts. Um, it's just a little Kahoot link. It's sort of like Jackbox, if you've ever played Jackbox. And you can play the quiz totally on your own just for fun anytime you want, even though the live event has ended. Um, so we had, like, uh, my records say 28 players and far more people than that attending our event. So it was a really awesome and, like, exciting opportunity to socialize. It was very casual. Um, and we met so many fun and cool people. So like to share some of our best questions um one of the hardest questions was when hg meets pete and micah she uses an anti-gravity metal which makes them stick on the ceiling and you had to type in the name what is the metal jillian wrote this question so the correct answer is cavorite um very few people got this because uh, it's so specific and hg wellsy from like his historical person's uh history but Someone put lesbianism as the answer, and I think <laughs> that was the answer of the day. That was the mood of the room. Like, we were having so much fun, um, so that was, that was, like, a great moment. That was so funny. One of my favorites was something similar. Like, it wasn't the right answer, but, like, it was the right answer in our hearts <laughs> was one of the questions was, what's Mrs. Frederick's first name? And in case you play the quiz... Don't worry about it. Like, I won't say it. But someone put Mrs. in all caps. And, like, that was very much the correct answer. Like, Mrs. Frederick's first name is Mrs. That is correct. And that's what she'd want you to think. 
<laughs> it, it is so true. And, you know, I created this quiz with like limited software functionality, you know, but I was like, if I was able to manually track the scores, I would give Mrs. a 100% correct answer because like, it, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it was also just really fun for me to see people engaging. And, like, we say 28 people showed up. I think that might have been the max that we had at any given time. But we had about 40 people over the course of everything, which was really fun and cool. And I just had such a fun time, and I'm so grateful to everyone who came and participated. And some people didn't even take the quiz. They just hung out in the chat with us, which was also really fun. And that's what I was going to say. So my Kahoot number of 28 is the people who took the quiz. But there were tons of people just being like, I'm just going to watch tee hee hee. And I was like, yes, stay and watch. Stay and hang out with us. Um, like I said, I joined the Discord after talking to some people and just um, I, and I got to hear so many uh, new stories of the things we already know to be true. So people who discovered the series this year and like are rewatching it right now and just getting to be like, I can't wait to watch you watch this. Like uh, having that interaction with strangers on the internet is what fandom is all about. And it was just so, so fun. That was actually the most gratifying part of the quiz to me, which was we had some like really hard questions in there. Like what's Micah's favorite activity for, you know, what she needs to think or like the cabaret question. And those were, like, for people who'd, like, watched it a million times, you know, like, and they knew. But it was also really fun to see, like, simpler questions and see people in the chat be like, I know this one. I'm so excited. It wasn't just, like, this gatekeepery, you can't sit with us kind of mentality. It was like, yes, join our tent. We love having you here. And that's the vibe I got from everybody I've talked to, at least at Klexicon. And I know how cons can feel uh, they can feel very gatekeepy. They can feel very polarizing. And I personally have never had that experience at Klexicon. I have always felt very safe and very welcome, even if I'm a new fan of an old thing, you know? Um, and so we just got to see all of these people be like so supportive of like someone during the panel was like, I've never seen Warehouse 13. Like, I just came to this panel for whatever reason. Should I watch it? And just seeing the chat blow up and being like, yes, <laughs> go watch it right now. Like, we will be waiting for you in the Discord to enjoy this show. Like, that is the energy that every fandom deserves to have of, like, inviting each other in to celebrate the thing that you love, um, which was so, ugh, just so phenomenal. So, um, yeah, that was our experience at Klexicon, and I'm just so proud to have been a part of it, and uh, we should, this is just totally off the cuff, uh, contact us anytime, because people kept typing in the chat, Warehouse 13 changed my life, Warehouse 13 helped me realize I was queer, like, we're past due for another mailbag, so please write to us or phone in, uh, or, like, record your voice and email us, or recording is kind of what I mean, um, because we'll keep collecting those stories. And when we have enough, we'd be so excited to share them with everybody. And it doesn't even have to be about the show itself. It can be about your experience with the fandom or even what the panel meant to you or any other panel you've been to that involved them and how it affected you, because we encompass all of that. We, we're here for all the love and we're here to support all the journeys. We do. And I, I just really hope um, that everybody feels just the sheer joy we felt today and just seeing the love and support from these amazing actresses and our community just really made my day yeah so uh 
I think that's all we have this time, agents. We will talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye.